to just get to hear from you guys, um, Tyler today and then the Sandifords last week. It's just amazing just to hear the stories and your voices, and uh, it's just cool. I, I think both last weekend, this week, we could have just ended and just gone home and after hearing those things. So thank you, Tyler, today. That was great. Um, Thank you for you college students who are here. I can't see half of you because of the lights, but uh, you're still here even though it's finals week. So good luck with those this week. I was just telling Jamie, I don't miss those at all. So good luck if you have finals and projects this week. And then uh, we look forward to seeing you when you all get back. But had there been newspapers back in the Roman Empire around 2,000 years ago, uh, some of the headlines might have been King Artaxerxes near death, green ship stock, Rome riots end. Nine pirate ships sunk by clash. Olympic wrestlers still in coma. Maximus controls his undefeated streak, or continues his undefeated streak. Who's cuter, baby Jesus or baby Yoda? (laughs) Which I didn't think about until just the other day. Uh, How cute really was baby Jesus? Like, was he the cutest baby ever? I just don't know how he ranks on that, but it's not something my brain had ever thought before. But... um, Such headlines really, in a large part, look very similar to headlines that we have today. Because the reality is is that the world of the New Testament is, in many ways, very much like ours. There were wars, there were sicknesses, there was poverty, injustice, unfairness. There were people who struggled to keep on living, just living by habit day in and day out. They lost all sense of meaning, all sense of purpose, no goals. And for a time, I was employed by the employment department here in helping people find jobs. And I can tell you that every day I saw people come into our office that had completely given up. They had given up all sense of meaning and all sense of purpose. They had no direction, no motion. They had no idea what they were doing. And I think we tend to think of ourselves as we're much more advanced. And yes, we are technologically more advanced. I wouldn't get in an airplane, for example, that was designed by Paul. It just doesn't make any sense. But the people of the day, people are still people. There's very little differences between the emotions and the feelings and just how people interact back then as they are now. And it was a world just like ours, populated with a people just like ours, that God broke into. God had been making preparations to burst into this world of men. Jesus was about to be born, and after his birth, our world, despite all of its mess, despite all of its poverty and injustices, its wars, its terrorists, its good and its bad, it's never been the same since Jesus. So let's read again Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 35. And in those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she, she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. I want to ask you all a question, really, that's kind of plagued me in many ways. Stay. Since I've been researching this. 
And the question is, why did Mary leave? She left her family. She left her comforts. She was very likely a very young teenage girl. Why did she leave, travel some 90-ish miles by an animal of some kind, to go visit her cousin? And as Jackie and I were even talking about this the other day, the first few months of pregnancy are the worst as far as morning sickness goes. So imagine traveling when you're sick. And that also got me another thinking, like, did Mary have morning sickness? Surely, right? You know, yes, Jesus is amazing, but she's pregnant, so she probably had morning sickness. Why did she do that? It doesn't really make any sense. And the long answer is kind of simple. Nobody really knows why she left. The answer to this question, and the majority of the research that I did, it it varies so much based on the author's view of whoever you're reading about, about their view of Mary. Because the more esteemed Mary is in the eyes of the author, the more important her journey to Elizabeth was. For example, I read some authors who said that Elizabeth was not blessed until Mary showed up, which is ridiculous. God had already blessed her. And I've read others that are the exact opposite, that really don't have any, they have a positive view of Mary, but her importance of of leaving is not very high. And they said she was fleeing Joseph for fear of retaliation of what he might do to her. Now, we know in Matthew that he was going to secretly divorce her until an angel came. So we do know that there was a little bit of a relationship issue, but it's also just kind of ludicrous to think that she was running for fear of her life for retaliation. I think I want to toss out a, maybe a plausible idea. It had been approximately three months since Gabriel had come to talk to her, came to talk to Elizabeth through Zechariah with announcing the birth of John the Baptist. And I know certainly word didn't travel back then as quickly as it does now, but it's not implausible to think that three months' time that word would have gotten out, especially to your family members, that this miraculous thing had happened. Zechariah was unable to speak. They're pregnant. There's something crazy going on. There's been a vision. Elizabeth knows what's going on. It's not every day that someone's visited by an angel. And if all of a sudden an angel appears to you, and you're told that your cousin, whether you knew that or not prior, it's not really known, whether Mary knew that Elizabeth was already pregnant, if you knew that your cousin would have been visited by an angel, I think you probably want to go talk and say, let's compare notes. What's going on? Imagine the conversations that were happening in the streets, in homes, in taverns, between friends. God, who had seemingly abandoned his people for hundreds of years, remaining silent, had suddenly done something. He had appeared. Now, certainly at that time, it was not understood what that something was. Nobody really knew what was going to happen at this point. But something is happening, and people would have been talking. And now, just a few short months later, after that initial angelic vision, another one to Mary. I think you add in the chaos of just what Mary's thinking, uh, the unexpected pregnancy, the impact of who she was pregnant with. I think it's no wonder that Mary would want to seek out solace from someone who had probably been experiencing some of the same things. Whatever the reason is, Mary makes this journey and visits Elizabeth. And we're told that when they greet each other, that the baby leaped inside of Elizabeth. John the Baptist 
leaps inside of Elizabeth. Now, shockingly, I've never been pregnant. Good thing. But I do have three children. And so I have a bit of an understanding of kind of the day in and day out, that the movements of what kids have inside the womb. And they move around a lot. And so this must have been some sort of very pronounced movement, like a ninja kick or something. Who knows what John the Baptist did, because he didn't like backflip or anything, but whatever. Um, It was so pronounced that it just reinforced what Elizabeth already knew about Jesus, about what her role was, about what John the Baptist's role was in all of this. It was just further proof of what was already happening. And she proclaims with a loud voice in verse 33, why is it that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? And Elizabeth uses a rather unexpected term here. She calls him Lord. Why is it that the mother of my Lord? See, throughout his gospel, Luke uses the term Lord frequently to describe Jesus, which is great. But it has a bit of a double meaning if you understood the times back then, if you understood the differences between Hebrew and Greek and all of that. See, the term Lord means the Messiah. And the Jewish readers would have been anxiously awaiting that Messiah to come. They knew it had been prophesied. They were mistaken in what they thought that that was going to mean. But when they heard the word Lord, they heard the word Messiah, this coming Savior. But on the other hand... It was used to translate the word Yahweh. Remember, the Jews back then, and throughout the Old Testament, the word Yahweh, the actual name of Christ, or actual name of God, was never spoken. It was never written down and spoken in a way. So we have all these other names for God because they, were, they esteemed the name of God, the actual name of God, as to be too holy to speak through the, eyes, through the mouth of a human. So whenever they saw the word Lord... They equated it with God. And so here's Elizabeth saying, God and the Messiah are the same. God has come in the form of the Messiah, which is amazing. She's ascribing godly characteristics to Jesus that was very clearly implying that she knew who the Messiah was. This wasn't just some random savior. This wasn't just some person, that this was God come down on our behalf. But I want to spend a minute and focus on something that Elizabeth did not display. She bursts forth with joy and blessings upon seeing Mary. There was no sense of competition, of envy, or jealousy. Now, this might seem like a strange statement to make, especially since we know how the story turns out. We look through the Old Testament, and we see Jesus everywhere. We look through the New Testament, and we see Jesus throughout the story. We know how the story ends. Tyler just said it very beautifully. Christ came on our behalf. Of course, the story is about Christ. Who else would it be about? Why would Elizabeth be jealous? It's not about John the Baptist. And I think the best way to answer this question is to take a super quick, and I'm talking super quick spin, through the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that he would be the father of a great nation. Abram, now called Abraham, uh, despite his very old age and despite his wife Sarah's very old age, would have a child. And that child would come on to have more kids and they would become a father of a great nation. Throughout Genesis, we see the results of that promise to Abraham through that covenant. 
as his descendants continued to prosper. We see God fulfilling this through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph, through others, eventually becoming the nation of Israel. He saves them from bondage to the Egyptians via Moses. Think the whole burning bush, pillars of fire, the plagues, Pharaoh, let my people go, manna, all of that. And eventually, through the end of the Exodus, leads them, the nation of Israel, to the promised land. After a period of a time of sending judges, think guys like Samuel or Samson and others, we arrive at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. There we are greeted with a rather sad story of a man named Elkanah and his two wives, Penina and Hannah. Hannah, at God's orchestration, was barren. Penina, who had her own children, was ruthless in her taunting of the other wife, Hannah, and her inability to have children. However, we see in chapter 1 that God hears Hannah's prayers. She gives birth to Samuel. Samuel was the transition period between the last judge and the kings. So think of him as the last judge. If you remember his story, he was the child that was laying down in bed one night and God was calling to him and he kept getting up. Who's calling to me? And it's God. She offers up this prayer. Hannah offers up this prayer after she gives birth to Samuel. In Samuel chapter 2, that is very similar to our prayer given by Mary. I encourage you to read through Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and just compare how very similar they are. Mary obviously had her words on her mind. Mary knew the scriptures well enough to be able to do that. So after Samuel, we see the rest of the books of Kings and Chronicles at the beginning of the end for Israel. Clamoring for the end of being judged by men just like Samuel and his sons, the, the nation of Israel sees the, quote-unquote, the success of their neighbors around them. And they say, we want a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, after having this conversation with God, Samuel approaches the people and says, God says, this is why you don't want a king. And he says, God, or the king will take your sons and use them as instruments of war. And you can hear the voice of the people crying out, we don't care, we want a king. And Samuel replies, he will take your daughters and use them as beauticians, as waitresses and cooks. We don't care. We want a king. He will take your servants, your harvests, and in the end, you will become his servant. We don't care. We want a king. And finally, Samuel counters with, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves but the Lord won't answer you on that day. We don't care. We want a king. Beginning with King Saul and David and Solomon and all the rest of the kings, we see Israel's faith ebb and flow depending on the faith of whatever king is in around at that time. And we see their nations fracture and fall apart, ultimately ending in the destruction of the nation of Israel, captured by the Babylonians. And then over the next 400 or more years, God was silent, just as he said he would be. This king will destroy your people, and I will not say a word. And that's where we find Elizabeth. 
God has been silent for hundreds of years. And he breaks his silence with her. And put yourself in her shoes. Your nation is now under the heavy-handed rule of the Roman Empire and has been under the foreign rule of some, some empire, some government or whatever, for hundreds of years since their destruction. Wouldn't you be a little proud of that? God has broken his silence, and you're involved. People were talking, and likely talking about her in a good way, talking about the amazing thing that God is doing. After all, although Zechariah at this point was unable to speak, people were talking. They knew that he had seen a vision when he came out of the temple. Wouldn't anyone want to keep the attention on themselves? I know some of you are thinking, Matt, you're crazy. Because surely Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah. Why in the world would she be jealous? And I say, you're not entirely wrong. But I have seen the unfortunate side of ministry. I was in vocational ministry for 17 years. And the amount of pastors, the amount of fellow ministers that I saw express jealousy over another ministry is staggering. Another ministry does well, and we look at our own, and we say, how come I'm not that? How come I'm not baptizing that many people? How come we don't have 150 people in our seats? How come whatever, fill in the blanks? I've had pastors tell me they feel so depressed after a Sunday service that they're ready to quit on Monday. And that Sunday service could have been amazing. Pastor that we know up in the Portland area, pastors a small church, lives right across the street from a really large church. And he told me once, he said, there are days when I look out and I see how big they are and how successful they are and how small we are. And I think, why keep doing this? I've had people tell me straight to my face, why do we need another ministry in Corvallis? Why do we need another campus ministry? Why do we need another church plant? The reason is there are 50,000 people in this town and about 5% of us go to church. We're not doing a great job. It's extremely difficult to avoid comparing ourselves to what other people have. Elizabeth does none of this. She has none of that envy inside her heart to say, I want to be a big part of this story too. No, instead she praises and she blesses Mary. An amazing model for us to follow. And really quick, I think now, as we transition to a new pastor with Doug, as he arrives here next month, pray for him. Always. Pray for him that he doesn't have these feelings of comparison and jealousy as he gets to know us and gets to meet us and gets to see what the church landscape is here in Corvallis. He has no idea of any other churches here in town. Pray that he never has to deal with that as a pastor of that comparison. But let's dig into what Mary's going to say. So let's read verses 46 to 55 again. So Mary says, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, 
because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. There has been a lot written about this section. This section is often called Mary's Magnificat because in Latin, the first word, and I was going to type it out for you and I didn't because I don't speak Latin, um, but just trust me that the first word is Magnificat and the rest. The word translate, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I want to say real quickly that we need to take heed not to put too much excessive exaltation on Mary. Yes, she is very unique. She was, after all, the mother of Jesus. But many of the things that have been ascribed to her through the years are just not true. There's no scriptural merit that Mary lived a sinless life. Only Jesus did that. There's no understanding or there's no merit that she was a perpetual virgin. She did, after all, have other kids, as if it would matter anyway. There's no proof that she bodily ascended into heaven. In fact, Jesus spoke very clearly against the worship of her in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. It says, As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. Blessed is Mary. He said, Jesus said, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's like, no, she's not blessed. Blessed are you are those who keep my word. Jesus was very blunt in his assessment of worshiping Mary. I think we would be wise to do so. Her, her praise, her prayer flows unplanned from her heart out of her blessing bestowed upon her by Elizabeth. As we said, she knew the scriptures so well. Bonhoeffer said in an Advent sermon in 1933 that the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary who we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humanity. And throughout history, people have given this song a lot of importance. People on the margins of life, the broken, the powerless, the weak, they've identified really strongly with this song, rightly so. There are rumors floating around that in the 1980s, the impoverished people of Guatemala were stirring in revolt, believing that Mary's words, that, that, that they could revolt and they could have change. They believed her words that God would look favorably on the lowly. And it kind of became a sort of anthem. And the story goes that the government of Guatemala found what they were saying. They found Mary's words to be too problematic God's words for preferential love of the poor was too dangerous and revolutionary, so they banned any public reading of Mary's words. I looked into this a bit, and it seems to be in some ways a bit of an urban myth, 
Nobody can say for certain whether this happened. There's a lot of antidotes, things going on that may or may not have happened. Certainly, there's always some truth embedded in some of these urban myths. But even if it isn't completely true, I think it just goes to show that the power of her words resonates so strongly with us because we find ourselves so often in that weak and powerless state. She begins her praise and goes straight to the point. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I think it's interesting to think about her reaction in light of where she is in history, same as Elizabeth. God is breaking into this world. We use the term Savior very frequently on this side of the cross. We have a very different understanding of what the word Savior meant compared to what Elizabeth and what Mary knew. They knew the Messiah was going to come and save them, yes, but they didn't really understand the way we understand that Jesus has come to save us from sin. But Mary, she had none of that. Yet here she is calling on God as her Savior. It seems that she had a very deep grasp, even from the beginning, of who Jesus was going to be. Now, it's unrealistic for us to, know, to think that Mary knew what Jesus was going to do. She had no idea he was going to turn water into wine and walk on water and all of these things. But she very clearly realized that the Messiah was coming and he was the one that they were waiting for. He was going to be her savior. While she's throwing up with morning sickness, I was wondering, is she saying, this is going to be worth it? I hope so. She knew from the very beginning that this child was her savior. Notice, though, who God has chosen. God didn't choose someone who was going to be queen. He didn't choose someone famous or someone who was showing obvious merit. No, he chose this lowly peasant girl from this random place to bring his son into the world. And Mary gives praises to God in verses 48 and 49, for through his holiness, she has found favor in her eyes. And why is this important? Imagine if God had chosen someone super important or some specific prominent female of the day. Jesus would have been born and undoubtedly his ministry would have flourished just as it did. But that suddenly has Jesus being part of this elite crowd. Would he ever truly know what it was like to live as a common person? What about the poor? If God only used the most famous or those who seem to exhibit the most merit, there is no hope for any of us. Philippians would instead read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, only if I'm good enough, or if I show enough merit, or if I'm famous enough, then God will do things through me. No, that's not what Scripture says in any way. God chooses the lowly, the humble, the least expected. Look at who he announced his birth to. To a group of stinky, smelly shepherds on the middle of a hillside in nowhere, generally the outcasts of society because they were considered unclean. That's who he chose to give his announcement to that first night. Be like Jesus or God coming and saying to a bunch of duck fans, here's Jesus, outcasts of society. <laughs> okay, maybe not quite like that bad, but... He chooses the lowly. That's what he does. 
He chooses to use people because he is holy. As Mary states in verse 39, the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. God's nature, his essence is holy. We are quite aware that his ways are not ours, that his attributes are perfect and that we don't always understand what's going on that his holiness is displayed together in this perfect unity, and it's coming together in the Messiah. We cannot make the all-too-common mistake that because God is great, he only chooses great people. We need to realize that God's holiness has been expressed and will continue to express itself by God exalting the lowly and the humble. Vast quantities of people have perished throughout the history of the earth because they were enamored with their own pride or their own power or their own wealth or chasing after that or chasing after it because someone else told them to. How could we be so naive as to think that God would be partial to these things when more often than not, they're merely our poor attempt at a substitute for God? Mary is pleading with us to look at God Look at the Messiah. Look at who he was and who he was to come. See what he's really like. See that God is in no way impressed with our power, our wealth, or our pride, or our whatever. He has mercy on those who fear him. Mary knew the Messiah was coming, but what were her expectations of what Jesus was going to do? Certainly we knew that she expected him to be merciful. She mentions three times, In verse 50, she says, His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. In verse 52, the second half, she says, He has exalted the lowly, or exalted those of humble estate. And in verse 53, He has satisfied the hungry with good things. She expects the Messiah to do some great things for people. Exalt those who are lowly. Satisfy the hungry. But on the other hand, We know that God is opposed to the proud and to the arrogant, those who think themselves are self-important. She mentions this three times also. In verse 51, she says, He has done a mighty deed, or he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones, in verse 52. And in verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. Probably doesn't take very long for us to think of Jesus doing some of these very things. Think of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he sends that man away empty. She expected him to do things. But it's no way a stretch to think that Mary was thinking in some ways like the people did back then. That Jesus was going to come as this conquering king and overthrow the Roman Empire. That was the prevailing thought of pretty much every person in the Jewish life back then. I think it's easy for us to envision Mary praying to God to bring vengeance upon Herod and that entire establishment that he represented. He'd be merciful to the people of Israel, as she states in verse 54, but he wouldn't be merciful to anyone else. While I was researching this, there's the, um, the Herodium, which is like Herod's summer palace, which is kind of this big old castle on a hill. You could see that from Bethlehem, You could see that from Jerusalem, this great, just big castle on a hill. It was very hard to get away from the Roman influence. 
And in some ways, you could just kind of picture her saying, God, show mercy on us. Overthrow these. However, we know that Jesus came and he did quite the opposite. He wasn't this military conquering king that the Jewish people were expecting. He didn't come and overthrow the government. He didn't establish his own rule while here. He did amass large amounts of followers for a time. But in the end, they abandoned him and turned on him. And he died a disgraceful death on a Roman instrument of punishment and humiliation. But why? See, this is the beauty of the Advent season. The beauty of the Messiah, the beauty of Christ. He came because his people needed a savior. But the people were not just the people of Israel. And the thing that they needed saving from wasn't just the Roman Empire. No, his scope was far greater than that. The beauty of the Messiah is that he came for all humanity to save us from something that the majority of us don't even realize is an enemy, the enemy of sin. In the book of Romans, we read that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person that has ever lived apart from Jesus has lived a life enslaved to sin. Our payment or our wage for that sin is death, eternal separation from God. However, as Mary states, and indeed the rest of Scripture, that God is merciful, that God is holy. God proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were mired in that slavery to sin, Christ died for us. And the beauty of the gospel is that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That is the beauty of the Messiah this Advent season. That is why Jesus came. God had never desired a world that men have made. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 5 that God looked for justice. And when he looked out, he saw bloodshed. And when he looked for righteousness, he heard cries of distress. Even his own people of Israel, who had been given God's laws directly, disobeyed. God sent prophets to guide them. God sent judges to them, and they continued to twist life incorrectly and twist it out of shape. People of Israel were brothers to each other. But in the passion and selfishness of sin, they distorted that. They cheated one another and tried to choose and lied to one another. Tried to choose themselves over each other. So God judged the sin of his people. But something unique was about to happen. In this insignificant little town in a Roman province, in Roman's widespread empire, the birth of a baby would do what no authority or invention of man could. In the birth of Jesus, God acted decisively to bring new life to individuals and a new life to humanity. To every person who lives by habits, or by hopelessness, or who's given up, without direction, with no hope, to you and to me, Jesus' birth offers new life, new freshness, transforming power by God. 
This is what the gospel is all about. This is what Advent's all about. This is why Jesus came. One day, that baby, fully grown, would say, I have come that they, us, people, may have life and have it to the fullest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Would you pray with me? God, it's, it's difficult sometimes to think just the depths of our depravity and how much we really do need a Savior. God, we thank you for sending your Son through Mary. God, we thank you for just her praise and just her honesty. God, her willingness to just say, you have come to help the weak and the lowly because you have. God, all of us here without you are in a depressed state. Even if we know it or not, God, we are slaves to sin. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to die on our behalf, to take our place so that we can spend eternity loving you together. In your name we pray, amen. child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping who just me with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping this is, this is Christ. 
just have one quick announcement, just a reminder, Christmas Eve, we will be with Hub City in Albany, that way I think from here, yeah, that way, um, don't come here, go to Albany, we can have fire over there, which is great, um, so that is at 6.30 at Hub City in Albany, I want to leave you with this out of Luke chapter 2, in the same region, the shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to people he favors. Go this week singing glory to God in the highest. Good luck on finals. See you next.